0: Blog TALK RADIO This is All About Wine, the talk show dedicated to the wine industry since 2009. Featuring winemaker, cellar master, vineyardist, and tasting expert, Ron.
1: Basically what we're trying to do on this program is just trying to educate people on trying to
0: make wine less confusing and more friendly. From coast to coast and around the world.
1: You know, we really have had some, some neat people on the program. I, I just, I love that.
0: Post your questions and comments during the live show on our Facebook page at www.facebook.com forward slash allaboutwinebtr. Again, that's www.facebook.com forward slash allaboutwinebtr. And now, All About Wine is on. Here's Ron. Wow, okay
2: I did all all ten of them six yeah. feet apart, six feet apart folks, six feet apart, maintainers facing whatever they call it social uh, dis- social distractions, whatever six feet people six feet, thank you thank you back in the back. I appreciate that, thank you, yeah, what do you do? ten rows back? see, the problem is is they're six feet apart from each other now that's that's in three hundred and sixty degrees, so there's people now, like, in other yards and other property because they're so far from wow. each other. Yeah, and, you know, that's true. I mean, six
1: feet apart in all directions. It's not like...
2: Ten people, ten people here, but they're yeah. 60 feet, <laughs> stretching
1: out 60 feet. Yeah, 60 square <laughs> feet. I mean, that's, you know, we're using up a lot of space here just for the ten people, so. Yeah, but, you know, we did clear it with the neighbors, so, you know, it's not going to be a problem. Right. They said it was alright, they understand the situation
2: and Yep
1: and Welcome the must to the go on. show
2: That's right and It is going on uh, <laughs> What are we at? 7.02pm uh, um, We are Last we Thursday of guest?
1: March yeah. Oh, is it? April Fool's is
2: coming up next Thursday
1: Or well, April 2nd Wait hmm. what is my date? Let me look at my calendar no, April 2nd. We're gonna pass April 2nd. Last Thursday in March and we'll have April 2nd coming up on our next show. So we're almost done with March
2: Wow. Wow. So,
1: right. so we start looking forward to April. Baseball season officially started today, by the way, for all of you sports fans out here going to the on. Um, baseball season started, uh, the, the actual season started, and uh, so we, uh, if you're a sports fan, I think they're showing important games all around the markets, all around the country, so you can tune into that. We have a guest tonight, uh, Jim Loughran, I think there's a Uh
2: I'm I have to check with him, to be sure to is Might he sitting on, in our... They might be. I don't uh, recognize the number. Let me pull them in and see what uh, if we got them here. It's the right area code. So uh, let me let me try this. Well, we're gonna bring him on air anyway. So so as soon as you hear yeah. unmuted, you're on, and we'll see how this goes. <laughs> Hopefully, with I don't recognize the number. That's <laughs> right. you, unmuted. Hello, Jim. Hello. Hello. How you uh, doing? Stupid oh, business. there you are. It's like a crisis. It just. You still can get your money. You know what I'm saying? Well, if, I'm not going to echo Boy Greco and say greed is good during this time. All right? It's just a way that you handle yourself and a way that you do business in your prices. Now, if you're going to do it by supply and demand and up yeah. your prices,
1: because the demand is
2: true. I don't think this is him.
1: I don't think that don't was him. It. I didn't understand that at all. I just... <laughs> Let me see. Let me.
2: We need to go. We need to go to the green. <laughs>
1: yeah, quick, let, me, let me go back here and see 954 area code.
2: What? Oh.
1: 954
2: nine area code. That's you, okay, I was looking at the other other digit there. All right, I got that off. Let me, uh, yeah, that is off. Yeah. Um, hold on just a second. Me, um, the other one
1: that's on the screen there, I don't know if that's him or not. <laughs>
2: All right, hold well, on just a second. I'll be, I'm going to make a call real quick. Uh, da, da, da. Just to
1: call him. Well, let, me, let me check and see if y'all are going to hear it's something in here, too. I'm going to click on this <laughs> other one. We've got another call coming in here. Let's see if that's in. Jim, is that you? It is, indeed. All right. What? Yeah, well, he's here. 207, Erico, which was fooled us, you know. Uh, but uh, The great sure. state of
3: Maine.
1: Uh, welcome uh, right, welcome to All About Wine. Well, thank you. It's great to be been with looking, you. you know, looking for, well, we just had a little glitch. We had a phone call come in. We had no idea what it was. We didn't know if it was you or not. We didn't recognize the area code, so we brought them on the air, and they <laughs> were talking about investments and stuff like this, and Mike and I just sort of, huh, scratched our heads and thought, well, that's <laughs> not Jim. <laughs> so.
2: Normally, I'm glad normally this is... have, normally no, have I, to... I shouldn't
3: I shouldn't be allowed to give advice on investments. Uh
2: I yeah.
1: know. So. <laughs> uh, Maybe we should have just listened to Madison and you tonight. It might have been worthwhile. <laughs> I don't know. So, <laughs> so well welcome yeah. to the first question, is it Loughran or Lafrin?
3: It's actually Lochran, like a C K. It's a, it's an Irish it's a bastardized version of
1: McLaughlin. Ah, uh, uh, I've been pronouncing it wrong, no matter how I try to pronounce it. So, doctor. Oh, okay. All right. Well. Well, welcome to the show. Uh, uh, Mike's standing by. He's constantly streaming and and texting and doing all sorts of stuff, and I'm sure he'll have questions and all that throughout the show. But uh, we're happy to have you on. Uh, I've been reading your bios and all that, and you've written a couple of books, and you've uh, spoken to groups and groups of people, and you have uh, gotten yourself some traveling around the world and all sorts of stuff here uh, that looks like it's, uh, I'm envious of the possibilities, but uh, great for you. So uh, I'll let you tell us a little bit about yourself to start here.
3: All right. Well, uh, first of all, let me say it's great to be with you folks. Uh, I, I love uh, chatting about wine with anyone else who appreciates it. And uh, as far as my situation, I, uh, many years ago, became uh, a wine collector. Uh, And, of course, I was collecting stuff that probably ran, you know, four to five dollars a bottle and collecting it for 20 minutes or so until I could get home.
1: Good stuff. (laughs) Uh,
3: (laughs) Gradually, however, I was one of those kids, even when I was young, even when I was in college, you know, everyone else was out drinking beer and and loving their beer and there was just something about wine that attracted me I there was I don't know I was just drawn to that that set of flavors if you will and uh, so I have enjoyed wine for much of my life Uh, was a a a real rookie amateur collector Uh, at one time I was doing business consulting And I was hired by a guy to run his import operation in Miami. So I became an importer and distributor, and that was back around 2001, I guess. Uh, Loved it. Uh, Flew to Europe and visited a lot of wineries and, and bought lots of wine, really built up a pretty exciting portfolio. And then gradually got more into the consulting end of things. I liked the restaurant business, so I did a lot of wine lists and staff trainings, etc. And uh, eventually my writer side came out. I'd written things uh, of other sorts for my entire life and realized that if I knew anything, I knew something about wine and that made sense as a subject to tackle. uh, And I did. And so since then I've spent most of my time traveling to various wine regions and and writing about wine and uh, sampling and enjoying and just uh, meeting all the great people in the wine world and trying to introduce other people to the wine world. Uh, I'm, I'm a real believer in the fact that wine should not be uh, an elitist product that should not be intimidating. Uh, there's no room for snobbery in the wine world as far as I'm concerned, which has earned me a few cold shoulders through the years, but so be it. Uh, you know, it, it's uh, it's fermented grape juice, kids. You know, let's not get excited. Uh, it has a wonderful history, and uh, it's a wonderful thing to enjoy, but it is what it is.
1: And you, uh, you mentioned that. Basically, the theme of this show, all about wine over 10 plus years ago, 11 plus years we've been doing it now, is we're trying to make wine less intimidating and more friendly. And that's just basically what you're saying, too. You want to keep it in that range where it is not something that you put up on the pedestal and you're afraid of. It's something that you want to embrace and you don't need to exactly. use all these fancy words to talk about it. You can... Anything you can think of. You know, the,
3: the bottom line is that I think wine's greatest calling, and probably has been since we as humans discovered wine, uh, is its ability to give pleasure. Mm-hmm. And that's really what it's about. So if it puts a smile on your face or a little warmth in your heart or uh, relaxes you a little bit after a tough day, That's what it's all about, and anything beyond that, take it or leave it. It doesn't matter. Wine has played so many roles in society through the millennia that uh, it's silly to look at it as any one thing.
1: Well, it's just, and long speaking of millennia, the the presence of wine and how it came about throughout Europe uh, from the Roman Empire is just, it was a tie for everything there. It kept, every time anyone was assigned an assignment away from Rome, they always, first thing they did was plant their grapevines and to make their wine. Right, sure. So it was was this constant underlying theme of everywhere. And so Mm. and they always had the opportunity to come in, have a glass of wine. The giants are famous for doing it now.
3: Oh, sure. Yes, they certainly are. Uh, Yeah, I mean, wine was part of Roman culture. And one one thing the Romans did was they took their culture with them wherever they went, whether it was uh, in architecture or construction or uh, lifestyle. So you could not be a good Roman citizen if you didn't have wine at your side, Mm -hmm. on your table. And so grapes were most definitely... uh, uh, an important uh, aspect of of the Roman invasion of uh, all parts of the world and um, at one time wine was also one of their major currencies uh, you used to be yeah. able to you know buy and sell workers and slaves in the Roman Empire with uh, you know an amphora of wine so it has a it has a long history uh, Rome was actually the first culture or the first culture we know about <laughs> that considered wine a right for everyone. Huh. So in in that. fact, even slaves in Rome were given wine. Huh. Now it, it wasn't the good stuff that, that the Senate was drinking, but it was wine. It was considered just a right of life. Uh, so very interesting. uh, uh in that uh, they had a a completely, uh, not completely, but a somewhat egalitarian uh, uh,
1: outlook as far as wine is concerned. And when we speak of Roman wine, too, I want to let people who are listening not get confused with picking up a bottle of your favorite wine on the grocery shelf. This wine was, they did add herbs and spices to some of them, and some of them were treated differently than what you're used to. uh, And it was used for healing and all sorts of stuff. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Well, you know, we have to realize
3: that that for most of history, uh, we did not have wonderful uh, airtight closures, and uh, (laughs) we didn't have refrigeration. So wine, as we all know, is a product that will spoil fairly quickly when exposed to oxygen. And much of the uh, uh, additives that the Romans and and many other cultures, in fact, put into wine were put in for the express purpose of preserving it longer uh, or masking those uh, kind of nasty matterized uh, tastes of wine that's (laughs) starting to go bad. So the Romans were crazy. I mean, they would put seawater in wine. That was fairly common. Yes. And they would also put lead in wine because they thought that added a nice little sweet taste to it.
0: Yeah. You know, and just, ask,
3: just ask my buddy Nero while he's fiddling as the city burns yes, down.
1: Yes, I just recently read something about that that the saying that Nero probably died from lead poisoning from the wine. And that's right drove yes. him to be crazy. Uh,
3: so uh-huh. now, I, we, th- <laughs> we
1: thought he was crazy all these years and he just liked wine. He just liked wine. That's all. Just, he liked <laughs> all that lead in wine. You know? And and what was it uh, three or four years ago when the big uproar about arsenic in wine and everything? You know, and they're saying right. there's trace amounts of arsenic. Come I mean, you know, come on, give us a break. They put lead in it. <laughs> that's all. Right, yeah. yeah it, uh, well, you remember the
3: scandal a number of years back. Uh, maybe we don't want to bring up wine scandals on the show, but nonetheless, that's the reality of it, and we're not into the snobbery. So uh, you remember when the Austrians were putting uh, antifreeze in wine?
1: Yes. Oh, uh, yeah.
3: I mean, that just about destroyed their wine industry.
1: It did destroy yeah, it their a, wine industry. It did. And it took it many was, years to recover from that. Yeah.
3: It really did, and now they have uh, – one of the strictest set of laws and, and regulations, and uh, Austria makes some fabulous wines, both reds and whites. But uh, they went through a rough patch for uh, funky additives, let's say.
1: <laughs> yeah, yeah, I remember that. I'm going, oh, my gosh. You know? And, I mean, it was like nobody would even go anywhere near Austrian wine. So. Yeah, yeah. yeah. <laughs> Yeah, well,
3: you lose the public trust,
1: and uh, it takes a while to get it back. It does. It does. So, you, uh, I, I noticed on your your website, and uh, well, well, actually, we can let people know you know what I'm talking about if anyone wants to follow in. You can go to Jim Lochran and that's L-A-U-G-H-R-E-N. Uh, dot com and he's got all sorts of information on there his homepage and about his books he's got a media uh, kit on there tells a little bit about him in the gallery but I want to refer to the gallery you've been uh, Spain you speak Spanish
3: I uh, I do when I have to I, and ah. I do when I've been practicing. Uh, So, you know, give me a week and I can get my Spanish brushed up to the point where I can succeed either in Miami or Madrid. So, Uh uh, yeah, I do have uh, some background in Spanish. So, yeah, I'm fairly comfortable there, whether Spain or
1: Chile or Argentina whatever. And that's what I was referring to, a lot of these pictures from Spain and Chile and Argentina. And, you know, we all know those are Spanish-speaking countries. And you, I don't see someone standing next to you as an interpreter, so therefore I would assume <laughs> that you probably should. Yes, I, yeah, I,
3: I was generally my own interpreter for the most part. Not that I'm fluent, but
1: uh, uh, I can get by. Uh-huh. And as long as you know the wine terms, that's really all that counts. There, so. uh, you mentioned that you were an importer around early 2000s. What was the name of your uh, company? It was called Wine for Everyone. The reason I ask is because uh, I ran a winery and had a winery, uh, and we opened in 2001, and we were looking at distributors and different things at that time to see maybe get wine in from somewhere else. We ended up finding a company that we worked with coming out of Chile and we brought in a, a container load from Chile. And I was uh-huh. just wondering if it was yours. It was not, I'm sad to say, but uh, right. we're dealing right. with importers at that time out of Miami. So, Yeah.
3: Well, Miami uh, was, and I assume it, it still is. I, uh, I lived in Miami for about 17 years. So oh. it's a place that, uh, I, I one time knew quite well, and I still have a lot of fond uh, fond memories of Miami, but it used to be uh, essentially the focal point of wine importation from Latin America and yes. a lot of importation of other things from Latin America. Uh, <laughs> but certainly uh, the Miami Wine Fair, which I don't even know if it's still held, was an annual event. And there were many importers uh, from countries all over uh, South America who would be there looking for distributors and uh trying to establish a presence in the u s mm-hmm. and That was really at the time when, for instance, uh, Argentinian malbec was just taking off uh, wow. you know they had decided that uh, that uh, it was a, a varietal worth producing. Uh, in a quality method uh, turning into really good wine I mean Malbec had been in Argentina for a very long Ever. time but it had been pretty rustic, pretty rough stuff and uh, the, you know they came to the realization that uh, this grape had some serious potential and they started paying a lot more attention to it and you know, hence the the explosion, if you will, of Malbec. And I remember back in those days, you know, people in Miami used to get really excited when you brought in a really tasty wine from Argentina because there just weren't many of them in the market then.
1: Yeah, that's true. Around the early 2000s, there, there wasn't. And everybody, whenever I speak to people of Malbec, I, I always say, what, what do you look for? Where do you get your... And most people refer to Oregon or even Worston, And I go, you really are missing the boat by not getting Argentina mailback. That is the, in my opinion, the pinnacle of mailbacks in the world right now. Argentina is doing such a wonderful job on it. And I never yeah, realized I would... it was that recent. Uh, yeah.
3: Yes. Yeah. Catena really was the one who did this. Uh, Katana was was encouraged by friends and family to come to the U.S. and he went to uh, California. He actually visited with Mondavi and and uh, was very impressed with uh, with that whole approach to winemaking. And he was kind of a scientific minded guy anyway, so he went back and started putting a lot of these uh, what were for him at that time more advanced vineyard techniques and, and uh, uh, both uh, viticultural and vinicultural techniques to work and really uh, stimulated the, the whole thing. And then, of course, they discovered as well that they had some fabulous terroir, or for those of us who just like to talk, they had some great dirt to grow these grapes in, uh, great climate and uh, particularly in the Uco Valley and uh, just south of Mendoza, which incidentally is a fabulous place. If you ever have a chance to go to Mendoza, take it. Uh, yeah. Wonderful place. But, yes, yeah, so that, that kind of kicked off the whole uh, the whole Malbec thing, and uh, it's amazing when you stop and think about it that that, that is only a 20-year run, and yet we now think like oh malbec that's been around you know forever and
1: yeah you know, argentina it malbec really has
3: not you know yeah, other never
1: really realized, originally think, in know,
3: france you know
1: yeah but they never the french never really embraced it like argentina has it's mm-hmm. uh, you know i mean i just i enjoy a good malbec myself and if i'm looking for one i always gravitate toward the Argentinian section of the of what a restoring in and because that's right, the, right. the Malbec. I mean, what's
3: you, very interesting is that Malbec, as we know, was originally a, uh, a French grape, and uh, is the predominant grape in the region of Cahors, and is also one of the permitted grapes in the Bordeaux blend. Uh, but for years, the grapes in Cahors were kind of Mm, I, again, I'll use the term rustic. They were very tannic and uh, little to no fruit. And uh, so what's what's happened now is that uh, winemakers from the southwest of France who have been growing Malbec, or they call it Cot, C-O-T often. They have uh, a number <laughs> of other terms for it who have been growing it for generations, I mean, literally hundreds and hundreds of years, uh, many of them are now going to Argentina, learning how the Argentines are making (laughs) Malbec and taking some of this new world uh, knowledge, if you will, back home to France. So it's very interesting now, next time you're in the mood for a Malbec, pick up a nice Malbec that you like from Argentina, but at the same time, see if you can find a, a French number
1: and uh, I do a little considered.
3: side-by-side comparison. Yeah,
1: And if, if they're starting to copy the Argentinian style, then the comparison is probably should be pretty close. So.
3: Well, I, I mean, you've got a very different a very different geography and geology and climate and so forth but what they are doing is they're trying to make it a little more fruit forward and uh, mm-hmm. dial back on the tannins a little bit uh so move it a little more i guess you would say toward the international style which is not mm-hmm. something i'm always in agreement with but i think uh you know they weren't they weren't uh establishing much of a presence uh before, so if they can improve the wines a little bit and, and maintain the viability of uh, wine growing and wine making in that region of uh, of Cahors, then you know more power to them. The
1: climate of what is that? What is it very dry or what's the winter's and days you know? Well, it's continental, uh,
3: you know, it's. Uh, it's in southwest France, so you're you're south of Bordeaux and you're a little north of Spain, so you're kind of on the in the real lower foothills of the Pyrenees. Uh so it's uh you know, not too far from the ocean, maybe a hundred and fifty miles from the ocean or so. So you get some influence. Tends to be dry. You do get you do get some influence, yeah. Yeah. But they're also, you know, it it was never the I shouldn't say never. In fact, in the 1100s, uh, the black wine of Cahors was famous throughout Europe. It was the favorite of popes. It was the it was the favorite of the king of England, uh, who, in fact, once ordered uh, his uh, tax collectors in Bordeaux to not levy any taxes against the black wine of Cahors because it was his favorite and he wanted it to flow freely uh, across the channel into England. So it has a long and rather storied history, but in the last hundred years or so, it's really kind of, in in France anyway, Uh, it sort of fell out of favor and uh, – you know the wine making techniques uh, hadn't been updated, and they just hadn't really kept up with the evolution uh of the of the industry you know they were using old uh old tanks the sanitation wasn't what it should be, and so forth so uh this has really just kind of brought them from the nineteenth into the twenty first century They kind of skipped the twentieth century.
1: I'll well, have, have to look for some. I never considered that. That's an interesting possibility there. Uh, you mentioned mm-hmm. something also too that uh, that got my mind racing. You said that Argentinians came up and was talking to Mondavi sage Robert Mondavi, and my thought went to the fact that Robert Mondavi has influenced wine so much in the world. It's just amazing. You, his name is. Into conversations about just about every country and everybody. Whenever you start talking about wine. the man was a a legend. He still is, but he, he he's been right. a legend for. You know. Yeah,
3: he had a pretty big influence, pretty seminal figure in the, in the wine world, and and I would I would say that he was really an international figure. Oh yes. uh, you know of course california wants to claim him and uh they they have every right to do so but mandavi influenced a lot of people and he also was just you know he was a gregarious person he loved other people and he loved wine and and he was a no nonsense guy but he was a guy who wanted to explore and try and he wanted to you know, start up other things, whether it was you know Opus One type uh, projects or projects in the Languedoc, which some of which never got off the ground. But he was always looking around. He was a he was a curious uh, uh, man who who was never content with what he had. He always wanted things to be a little bit better. Uh, you know, he always wanted uh, to see what else he could do. So he was a pretty dynamic human being in that regard and uh, had a big influence. Yeah, as you say, around the world he had a very big influence.
1: I had an opportunity to meet him uh, in California many years ago when I was living in California. I was into wine, visiting wineries and stuff like that. This was before Napa Mm -hmm. Valley exploded into what it is now. and The wineries up and down the uh, Napa Valley were smaller and more intimate and People were there, and I was at the winery one day, and he was there, and he was out talking to people and all that. And I had an opportunity to, to talk with him for about 45 minutes, and we just talked about wine and where it was going, what was happening with it and all that. And He, he was very, very humble, as I remember, but very knowledgeable, I and mean, just it you couldn't help but pick up the fact that he loved wine. And he loved yeah. everything about it, and he loved talking about it, and it was just a, a passion on his part. And one thing I re- do remember about Robert Mandava, he was just passionate about wine. So, mm-hmm. a memory I'll never forget, being able to talk with him for a while there. And then, many, many years ago, this was back in the 70s. Mm-hmm. Yes, as a matter, it was. It was in the mid-late seventies. Yeah.
3: Well, those are those are wonderful memories. I mean, those are the kind of things that that uh, give texture and substance to your your whole life in wine. And uh, I would awesome. encourage, you know, whatever younger people may be listening to this, uh, to realize that you know just keep yourself open to these possibilities and. All kinds of interesting things will happen. And at the time they happen, you may not even realize how interesting they are. But, you know, <laughs> ten, 10 or 20 years later, you'll look back and say, my God, I had a chance to talk for 45 minutes uninterrupted with Robert Mondavi. I mean, that's and pretty, exactly. special. And, and that's and pretty that, special. And at stuff. the
1: time, I didn't realize. but It did hit me years later. Whenever you yep. start to see Robert Mondavi's name everywhere in, in line, and you're going, oh, wow, I mm-hmm. got to talk with him. Uh, Yeah. yeah. You're right. It's something that just uh, had to embrace. Uh, You you have written a couple of books. Uh, The the first one is uh, 50, and my screen is not coming up here, and I don't want to say it wrong. Uh, That's all right. The
3: the first one was actually A Beer Drinker's Guide to Knowing and Enjoying Fine Wine.
1: Okay. What what brought about the title and what brought about the first book? I had been
3: going through a run of four or five years where I was teaching many classes, uh, formally teaching classes, informally teaching classes, uh, leading wine groups, uh, teaching restaurant staff uh, about wine and about selling wine and serving wine. And there was a constant refrain from some group of people at the end of each class or each course who would come up to me and say, you know, I love wine, but my other half, whoever that may have been, my husband, my father, my boyfriend, my girlfriend, my sister, whatever it was, is very into beer and I just can't get him or her uh, excited about wine. And it's very frustrating because I'd like to go out and, you know, go to a place and really enjoy wine with them, but they're just intimidated by it or don't know anything about it and don't seem to be interested in learning. So can you help me out? So I, I, I got this concept of what I call cross drinking couples, you know uh she loves wine and he loves beer and not to put a sexist twist on it because those are the actual numbers that uh, women uh drink and enjoy wine by a ratio about two to one over men uh, who prefer beer by about two to one over women (laughs) uh and so i said wait a minute i'm gonna i'm gonna write a book just for the cross-drinking couples i'm gonna uh, sit down with a beer drinker like it's a, a guy that I went to school with, a good friend, a longtime buddy with my arm around his shoulder and just kind of lay out uh, our perspective of what wine really is and why he shouldn't be intimidated and how he can enjoy it and, you know, the the high points of uh, the wine regions around the world and also talk a lot about beer, Uh So this was a time when the craft beer movement was a little bit younger. Uh, The book was released uh, late in 2012. And uh, so there's quite a lot of beer information in there as well. Uh, So I wanted it to work both ways, you know, introduce uh, some wine folks to uh, a little bit of beer uh, knowledge and lore, and uh, certainly introduce... uh, the, the beer lovers to the
1: big, wonderful world of wine that many of them had been missing out on. That happens a lot. When I had the winery, I've since retired and close it. People would come in all the time saying, well, you know, I don't drink wine, I, I like beer. And I would always compare the two, saying, well, when you drink beer, don't you sort of smell it? Can't you smell it when it's poured in front of you? And the answer is always yes. I said, wine also. And you look at the head, you look at you know the the color, you look at all that stuff, the same as wine. You're just switching over from one alcoholic beverage to the other, as far as all the senses and all the aesthetic scope. And so therefore your conversion to wine from beer is really less seamless than what you think it might be. And so a lot of them so that's oh, we will try it and it always seems to work out well that
3: well i that's a great point and th- that's actually uh a point I make early in the book that uh if you're a serious beer drinker, you already have the tools yeah you know you you're already your your palate is adapted to a fermented beverage, and uh yes you you assess it you you know you cite. You know, smell and savor and so forth. And uh, so you've got a leg up on someone who doesn't know anything about either one. So take advantage of that. Um, I think the biggest mistake that people make in trying to introduce a beer loving friend to wine is that they tend to offer the wine that they like mm-hmm. or that they think. They think the other person should like, uh, instead of really looking at what the person is drinking. So you know, in other words, let's say that you are, as many people are these days, you're someone who loves a you know a, a, an imperial IPA. All right, well that's a big gustatory experience.
1: Yes. I mean, you know, you
3: take a big <laughs> slug of that man, and I mean, you know, you've got some, you've got something going on in your mouth. You just uh, you know, with all those, yeah, I mean, that is some hoppy stuff. And, yeah. uh, you know, now, if you give someone like that a glass of Pinot Grigio,
2: <laughs>
3: what's the response going to be? What is this, yeah. Water?
2: water? Yeah, I mean, yeah.
3: really. And, and wow. yet that's what happens so often. You know, on the other hand, let's say that uh, you've got someone who drinks uh, a light American lager. You know, yeah. no names <laughs> need be mentioned.
1: No names, um, yeah,
3: right? And and then you you try to turn them onto wine by giving them a big glass of Amarone or something. Uh, <laughs> you know, I, I, again, you're kind of you're you're shooting in the wrong direction. So right. it's really a matter, I think, if your if your your friend, your significant other, whoever it is, uh, drinks beer, chances are they. They favor a certain type of beer. Now, maybe it's an IPA. Maybe they're stout drinkers. Maybe they uh, like brown ales. Maybe they're into amber ales. You know, whatever it is, or even the light. Pay attention to what that beer is like and try to get something that's kind of equivalent in intensity. You know, equivalent in in flavor, Uh, not the same flavor but in the intensity of the experience because again if you're drinking some big monster uh you know imperial ipa and and you have a sip of pinot grigio it's just yeah. not going to connect the you know there's just true. no connection there
1: that's a good point i you never considered that but you want to you don't want to shy them away immediately in the first one here sure. sure, i love this you need to try this so i do they try and they go yeah, So I'm glad you love it. Give me my beer. And that's just what's going <laughs> to happen. <laughs> so the uh, so the beer drinkers guide to knowing and enjoying fine wines it lived up to your expectations. I mean, it it was you. Uh, well, were you happy with the final results of
3: it? Uh, sure. I mean, you always want more sales than you get. Whoever you are, unless your name is James Patterson or John Grisham or something,
1: <laughs> but
3: uh, I was very happy with the book. Uh, it, uh, you know, it got a lot of uh, very positive critical feedback. In, in fact, it was named. Uh, Kirkus is kind of the big independent book rating. Uh, quality rating agency in the United States and worldwide and it was named a Kirkus Indie Book of the Year in 2013 oh. and it won, an, won a number of awards so um, oh, congratulations. so there were certainly a lot of people who liked it and uh you know sales were good uh I didn't know enough about marketing as an author at that time uh because it is the author who ends up Really driving the marketing uh, of yeah. almost any book, so I could have done a better job at that admittedly, but nonetheless uh I'm happy with the book uh it's still in print and uh, oh, very good. you know it motivated me to get smarter and and uh move on and uh the next stop was the current uh, book, which is called Fifty Ways to Love Wine More,
1: and that was the what titled, my question leading into. Did it motivate yeah. you to write this? Book?
3: Well, the motivation is really just to share my my passion for wine, my love of wine, uh, mm-hmm. with people who, uh, who who are a little intimidated by it. I've seen this too much. Uh, in the past i 'm sure you 've seen it as well. People who uh feel like they should apologize because they don't know as much as you do. you know oh, people who are a little intimidated uh because the psalm in his overly tight peg leg suit is coming over with a little snotty attitude and and uh you know that kind of thing um So I I really just wanted people to say, well, forget it. You know, we don't have to get into the textbook learning here. Uh, You don't need to know the formula for fermentation. We don't need to know what all the nutrients are for yeast. And, uh, you know, you don't need to know all of that stuff to really enjoy and feel like wine is a more important part of your life. But there are a lot of things you can do that just involve being a participant in the world of wine that will really do things like we were just talking about a minute ago, creating those wonderful memories of, of, you know, talking with Robert Mondavi. I mean, there's a lot of ways to make those kind of experiences come true for you. Uh, And so 50 ways to love wine more really is kind of a compendium of things that we can all do that just enrich our experience with wine and uh, bring it into focus a little bit more. And they don't require you to go to school and uh, so forth. Uh, they just require
1: you to, you know, to be present. That's it. And you know, that, and you, you were going to give us some adventures in wine appreciation. And that's really, you can appreciate wine and not be snobby about it. And I think that's probably what your book is all about. It's just trying to tell people these are things you can do to love wine, but you don't have to know that this has a hint of cinnamon in the nose and a little bit of black cherry in the taste. That's not required to enjoy the wine. That's
3: right. Absolutely. I mean, you don't need to know what the residual sugar level is. You know, you don't need to know what the total acid is. You know, I mean, that's interesting to know if you're interested in it. And, Many of us are interested in that kind of stuff, yeah. Yeah. but it's not a requirement you know um it's just not something that uh you know that that's necessary there's you know there's this kind of misconception that there's a secret handshake you know <laughs> there's some great mystery to it you know and yeah. uh people are under the impression that the more you know about wine. In other words, the more of an expert you are or the farther up the expert ladder you are, the more you enjoy it. Even okay. experienced wine people get caught up in that, you know, like in a yeah. contest. And that's so untrue. Um, <laughs> in fact, and unfair. Absolutely. Of course. Of course. You know, maybe you've never. Well, you remember, I mean, all of us who are, who are now wine freaks and geeks and lovers we had that experience that one tasting experience maybe it was the 800th time we had tasted wine or maybe it was the fourth but we had that experience which i call the vena epiphany you know i mean (laughs) at one one day you took a glass of wine and sipped it and something happened and you said my god this is Unreal! This isn't like any wine I've ever had before. What is this? And I mean, it sets you off on this whole path that you've, you haven't been able to get off of for for all That's these years, you know. Well, is is does anyone have the right to say that that experience didn't bring you every bit as much pleasure as some, uh, you know, MS or MW who's drinking an overly priced bottle of DRC?
1: <laughs> you know it
3: it, it it the pleasure is the pleasure you know there's a there's a great book out came out a year or two ago called neuroenology and uh it talks about how the brain perceives flavor and aroma huh. and and it it focuses on wine and you know what happens in our brain when we when we taste wine and and the circuitry and what the circuitry is attached to, and it's a very interesting book, and and it's uh, it's done so that a layman like myself can actually read it and understand most of it. So it, it's not uh, you know it's it shouldn't be intimidating for people who are really into that subject. But one of the findings that's very interesting is that rookie wine drinkers or people who really know little about wine can experience pleasure from drinking a a wine that's every bit as intense as the pleasure that a very experienced taster gets from uh, a very good bottle of wine. Mm. So the interesting thing is that it runs in, in different circuits in your brain. So if you are a wine expert... If, you, if wine is your thing, you have a little different pathway because you're making a lot of associations of past wines and, you know, you kind of know about climate and, you know, all that colors your perception of wine. Uh, and so it takes place in different parts of your brain, this appreciation and this uh, perception of aroma and flavor. Whereas if you don't know any of that stuff and you're just drinking it, you will likewise have pleasure that's just as intense, but it takes place in other parts of your brain. Very interesting. Huh. That,
1: is, that is very interesting. It, you know, you, you yeah, were fascinating
3: about book. Know. Neuroenology, you say Neuroenology, yeah. It's written by a guy... Uh, his last name is Shepherd S H E P E R H E R D I think Shepherd and he's uh he's a uh a uh I think he's a medical doctor and a PhD in biochemistry at Yale something mm-hmm. like that but sounds uh nice yeah to look to it up no.
1: yeah it came I'm out wrong. just a couple of, within the last within the last 2 years oh, that sounds interesting i would look it up You mentioned something about uh, people and not understanding wine and all that. I used to ask people, why do you like that wine? And they would give me this look, and they'd try to think of a really profound answer. And I would (laughs) stop them and I'd say, you know, you can just say because you like it, and that's okay. You don't have to have any... Any other reason to enjoy wine. You not say, well, because the bouquet is so intense or because this and that and this. You can just say because I just really like it. And yep. that's a legitimate answer. And so, you know, keep it simple. It's always the best thing to do when it comes to wine. Don't don't try to overthink it because and especially most of the people out there, and I'm not talking to the all the ones with the the experience of years and years and years, I'm talking to most of the people who drink wine, just keep it simple. And that yeah, creates the enjoyment continuously if you just don't try to overthink That's,
3: it. You're, you're absolutely, absolutely right. Uh, it, it's not, we've, we've put wine on an odd pedestal yeah. and I'm not sure quite how it got there, but, can you imagine going into a restaurant and ordering whatever, the meatloaf dinner <laughs> and, and whatever sides you want? And uh, so you order the meatloaf dinner with, you know, French fries and peas, all right? And the waitress looks at you and says, French fries and peas? No, no. The baked potato goes much better with the meatloaf. But, and peas, my goodness! The carrots are what you should be having. You should be having <laughs> baked potato and carrots, not French fries and peas. I mean, you would never, you would never tolerate that scenario. You wouldn't even oh. think of that scenario. But that's exactly to... what happens with wine. Ugh. That's wine. When people why people you... see their intelligence to some false god. Uh, of of knowledge that they think is necessary, and uh, one of the you know things that I tell people in in terms of you know what are the what are the ways what are some of the ways you can you can learn to love wine more, and I, I tell them one of the things is to ignore what the critics or the wine snobs tell you, yeah, <laughs> because. They're in the opinion-selling business. That's what they do. They need to have an opinion on everything because that's what they get paid to do. But it doesn't mean it relates to you at all. So you need to trust your own palate, and you need to trust your own taste preferences because regardless of your journey through the world of wine, whether it's something that's a week old or something that's 20 years old, and whether you're gonna be drinking wine for the next 50 years or just occasionally, your palate is your palate. And no one else is ever gonna taste the wine like you do. That's something that's discreet to you. So if you like something with a little more sugar in it, then have something with a little more sugar in it. If you like something that's super tannic, that isn't ready to drink yet, then drink something that's super tannic that isn't ready to drink yet. It's not because about the, pleasing other people, it's about pleasing yourself.
1: And a, the isn't ready is, is just a, a guide for those who don't like it and they want it different. So you're okay. You're okay drinking like that. Yeah, it's, Absolutely. It's so true on that. And, yep. and another thing along the same line, too, I always like to point out to people, and I mentioned this on the show quite a few times. The label, when you read the label and it says this is going to have uh, essence of strawberries and blackberries, <laughs> and if you don't smell those, if you don't taste those, that's okay. There's nothing wrong with you. Right? It's just, right. You know, again, that's just advertising that's just stuff to get people to, oh, look at this. Ignore that yep. stuff. You know, it's yeah. uh, your taste, like you just said, your taste is unique to you. So, Right, if you don't detect that. That's okay. And
3: well, I so, I love the uh, I love the wine pairings that are suggested on labels, particularly. Yeah. And and most most places have gotten smart enough that they don't do this anymore. But you still run across one once in a while, you know, particularly oh, yeah. from the from the bigger producers, and they'll say, "Oh, this is you know the perfect match with uh, butterflied pheasant breast over." Uh, Hungarian couscous with uh <laughs> saffron rice on the side. And you think, like, who the hell eats that? You know, what? <laughs> what? I don't eat that. When am I ever <laughs> I've never even seen that on a menu. So who cares <laughs> sure. what it pairs with if that's the pairing you give me, you know? Exactly.
1: Yeah. You see you see those pranks a lot too on on so this will go great with pheasant or with your uh goat and you know, people don't eat and goat you know if you say this goes great with your barbecued hamburgers hey that's for me and that's right. the, the difference between <laughs> wine and beer because beer will say this goes great with your barbecue and people go alright and they'll drink it but wine just tends to be what is it, full of itself at times <laughs> so.
3: absolutely sure Yeah, I I mean, that's one of the downfalls, and that's one thing that keeps a lot of people away from wine, and particularly if you're in a, uh, you know, a social setting, that's one of the things that drives people to say, the hell with it, I'll just have a cocktail. Mm -hmm. You know, they really would like to have a glass of wine, but they feel uncomfortable, and they're not beer drinkers, so they say, all right, well, mix me a cocktail, whatever. Um, So... People just need to, uh, just relax. Just uh, again, it's just fermented grape juice.
1: And that's it. That's the bottom line with it There, it's just fermented grape juice and some of it's better than others, but you know, there's grape juice that's better than others out there too. You can buy a store brand, you can buy Welch's and you can tell the difference sometimes. Yeah.
3: yeah. Yep. And as you, as you do learn more, that's great. Uh, if you care to learn more there's there's thousands of sources of information and help there are uh, you know there are certainly books we've been talking about wine books uh, but there are tasting groups and clubs and you know a thousand different ways to learn about wine should you decide you want to, and you can do them all these days in the privacy of your own home. In fact, yes. you have to do them all these days. In the you have to do right? <laughs> right, right. right.
1: Yeah. Yes. But you, you're absolutely right. There's there's uh, uh, Great Books uh, has a real nice course on wine. It's uh, not a basic mm-hmm. course, but it's really, really a nice course on wine. And that yep. you do and just order and do on your own computer. And there's lots of other uh, sources to uh, expand your knowledge. And so, and, it, you know, and if you don't want to do that, if you just wine, do it, drinking drink wine. I don't want to know all that stuff. Wonderful. Do it. Drink the wine. And the only thing
3: I encourage people to do is explore a little bit. You know, yeah. Yeah. I think that <clears throat> people are often afraid of making the wrong choice. Oh,
1: yeah.
3: And so what happens is they make no choice. And that means that they buy the one thing they're comfortable with.
1: So oh, the, maybe the default someone wine. Absolutely, yes. Yeah, I call it the, the so, default wine. People are so good at picking up their default wine and not trying something else. Sam, Yep. Yep.
3: So whatever the default wine is, and for everyone it's different, it could be a Pinot Noir for someone, it could be a Chardonnay for someone, it could be a jug of who knows what for someone else. It, you know. But yeah. the point is, as much as you are comfortable with that. There is very likely something that is going to be as pleasing, perhaps even more pleasing to you if you like that flavor profile, just because Mm -hmm. there are so many thousands of wines in the world. And I do encourage people to develop a relationship, which, uh, again, we've got to put all this stuff on hold for the time being, with a good retailer, someone who runs (laughs) a, a good wine shop, because... These people have tasted everything on the shelves, and if you go in and you say, look, I normally like this California Pinot Noir for $15 a bottle, but I'd like to try something different, you know, can you make a suggestion? Any really good wine retailer is going to come up with three or four pretty interesting uh, alternatives, and just try one. Try two. I mean, Just expand a little bit. There are so many, so many thousands of wonderful wines in the world that if you do enjoy wine, not know anything about it, but if you just enjoy it, you're kind of cutting yourself out by only having one or two of the many thousands that are actually out there. And I understand that it can be a little intimidating to pick it on your own if you don't really know much about it, but... That's why you want to use a good retailer. Pick his or her brains. You know, she's there because she loves wine. And uh, as I say, she's probably tasted everything in the store, uh, understands what you're looking for when you say you like a certain kind of wine, and can give you some alternatives that might uh, open up new
1: worlds of flavor for you. I. People who are listening to this show hear that. I have told you that before, and that's great. Thank you, Jennifer, for confirming my mm-hmm. suggestions to everyone. Find yourself a good local wine shop or something, and something could come in on the shelf, and they could sit on the computer and email you and say, hey, I've just got this bottle of such and such in that you would probably really enjoy. Why don't you give it a try? And, yeah. you know, you're, one of your best friends in the wine Industry would be your local retail shop online. That's
3: yep, a yep, great source. Mm-hmm. Uh, just yeah, yeah, absolutely. Yeah, it is. A, it's a great and a very underutilized source. Yes, you know, yes, and, and there's no, there's no, there's no snobbery, uh, or there shouldn't be. You know, sometimes people can get intimidated with a with a a sommelier, uh, right. and some sommeliers want to intimidate people. No, be be honest. <laughs> uh, but wine retailers don't you know what they want to do is they want to sell you a bottle today and then have you come back tomorrow and buy another bottle they yes. want to develop a relationship with you and they're not going to be able to develop a relationship with you if they give you bad advice and they know yes. that So if they can give you something that you really do enjoy, the chances of you coming back and becoming a regular customer are much, much higher. That's their agenda. Everyone has their own agenda, and that's theirs. So it's perfectly in line with what you're trying to do as a novice wine drinker saying, I would just like to try something that's kind of similar
1: to this but a little different. And you don't have time to buy everything on the shelf. And experiment. You don't have time to, well, let's try this one this week because you're right. afraid and possibly get something you don't like, but making friends with someone who knows these store owners, anyone in the store who's got a little bit of knowledge is the greatest resource you can possibly come across when you're drinking wine. Amen. Right. Yep. Yeah. yeah Mike, we're you full agreement on that. Yeah. As is what? I, I preach that all the time. Mike, you out there, you have anything you want to ask Jim?
2: Yes. Well, I was I was just uh, listening to you when you when you mentioned I, I think you called it a veen epiphany, and yes. the light went on because I'm I'm following along with this. I'm like, wow, they're they're talking about me because <laughs> from the from the 1980s, uh, which was just a few years ago, to uh, 2000. Uh, when did I first go to Florida State Winery? It was like 2000.
1: That, uh,
2: yeah, around right, there. Florida. I was white wine, uh, one particular label, you know, if it wasn't in or something, I wouldn't buy wine, but that was it. And that's all I drank, all I tried. I never tried the red, you know, I might've taken a sip, but it wasn't, a, you know, anything big. Right. And then I moved to Florida and I went to Florida State's winery that was, uh, runs a winery. Mm-hmm. and I went wine tasting with him and it was not just educational it was fun and it, it was relaxing you know I, I I never been to a wine tasting and he introduced me to some red wine and I've been hooked ever since I I don't think I I may have taken a few sips of a white since then but <laughs> but now I'm hooked on the, the red and I'm I'm more now Interested in going to uh, to wine tastings. I, I went to two in Texas when I visited in Dallas. I, I uh what was the other ones I went to. But anyway, you know, I'm, I'm kind of broadening that more. And and I think that was my my epiphany was when I went to the winery to, to Ron's winery and he introduced, you know, The education part of it, the enjoyment of it, and you know, try try this, try this port, try this red, the the spice. I was God, I was hooked on spice. I thought it was a drug, but um, you know, oh, it was. And and then you know, and then then, yeah, and then I learned about you know the dessert wines. And and, in in Dallas, I tried my first was it the first uh, chocolate wine I think I had? Yeah, chocolate, chocolate cherry. uh, Yeah, and I mean, Mm -hmm. it was just. There, there's a lot of flavors out there and it, and it really that was it and and i don't think i've i i have yeah I'm, I'm pretty sure i have not tried a a white wine since then you know maybe a taste here and there but other than that right. I, i'm, I'm okay. well and, see and, the and...
3: wonderful thing about that story quite frankly is that you know you're sharing how the how the the barrier got broken down for you mm-hmm. and everyone who is into wine, had some kind of experience like that, something that made them stop and think and realize that what was going on was more than just drinking another glass of beverage, uh, that it was something special and something worth trying to find again or something, uh, an experience worth trying to recreate. And, uh, you know, that, that's, that's very valuable stuff. And you've got so many things in your little story. You you went to a winery in Texas after you went to a winery in Florida. See, I love that. I have a whole chapter on visiting wineries uh, in your neighborhood. You know, Mm. people don't realize that there are wineries in every state in the Union, you know, awesome. everyone knows, sure, California, yes, we got a lot of wineries. Oregon, yeah, we got a lot of wineries. Washington State, yeah, we've got a lot of wineries. New York, yeah, we've got a lot of wineries. Outside of that, people think there are no wineries. They don't realize that there are great little wineries in, in the Ohio Valley. Uh, there are great little wineries in, in Hill Country outside Fredericksburg, Texas, uh, you mm-hmm. know, great. there's a great little winery at the end of Cape Cod uh, in in uh, Massachusetts. I mean, there are great little wineries all around the place. So mm-hmm. it's wonderful to go to these. And, yeah, I'm not going to tell you they're all fabulous because they aren't all fabulous, but they're all interesting. And mm-hmm. they're all pretty relaxed, which is nice, too. You know, you can go in there and you've got a pretty good chance of running into the winemaker or the owner or someone, the Robert Mondavi of wherever you happen to be. And and chatting for a little bit and getting a little insight, a little inside look, if you will, at things. So, yeah. you know, it, it may be grapes you're not familiar with. It may be Marquette or Chambourcin or Marichal Folk or whatever it is. Uh, you know... You may prefer other grapes or you may prefer those grapes, but you don't know till you try. Right. So go and try those. And I'm, I'm going to give you a little uh, insight as well, based on your story. Uh, I'm going to turn you back to white wine. And this is how <laughs> you, you, ha- you obviously have a palate that appreciates a really good dessert wine. So what you should do is you should look up a Hungarian Tokai or look up a French Sauternes. And those are both white grapes turned into dessert wines that are magnificent.
1: And it's a dessert period. Those are just magnificent,
3: yes. They are dessert, oh. yeah. They're magnificent wines.
1: They are. So look up, look up.
3: and Ron can help you, you know, Point you in the right direction, but yeah, uh, try a couple of those. What can be stunningly good, uh, yeah, and you can is. get them in. Yeah, they can
1: just be magnificent. The trouble uh, is, Mike huh? will so if start you, getting those, and he will just <laughs> start buying a bunch of it, and I'll never get him back on the show because he'll be out
2: drinking those wines. <laughs> 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 but uh, <laughs> that's not gonna happen. But I yeah, I, I can I can I can uh, get hooked on it but uh and, and still have the reds in there, but uh yeah, I would definitely be interested in, in uh checking those out. Definitely. Thank you. Um Sounds the other time. um Yeah. Uh there was something else. I was uh, we do have a uh, question from the Facebook uh page, so I'll pose that also. Um Okay. But you were talking about the, the wineries They're you really do a ser- do a search out there for them they're they're in the hills they're like you mentioned um in the hill country like in texas and different places like that i found two or three three at least in uh northeast georgia or or mm-hmm. South? i forgot um God, where was that but just just tucked away in in the uh, little rolling hills and everything they're you know they're they're great people and and uh definitely uh put that out there they there's they're in your area, wherever you're listening to us from, because they're there and, and support them and, and go visit and, and you'll enjoy it. Um, I mean, it's, it's a great experience. Um, So thank Yeah. Thank you for that uh, suggestion. Definitely. Um, Gina from Facebook is wondering what the most exciting wine region in the world is right now. <laughs> oh,
3: uh, Gina. Oh, Gina. Oh boy. Well, you know, that would vary for, I I will give you an answer but I'll preface it by saying that would vary for everybody. It probably the most exciting wine region in the world right now is the one you're going to be visiting next.
1: You know, <laughs>
3: that's the one that you're learning about. That maybe, you know, if you do have a trip planned, you're reading about it a little bit, you're finding out about the history of it a little bit. Uh what the major wines are. So that's that's the excitement. Whenever I read about uh, a particular wine region or type of wine. I suddenly need. I need it. I, I want that wine. You know, if I'm reading a book about, you know, uh, northern Italy, I suddenly, I suddenly have this Jones for Barolos or something. You know, I have to go find <laughs> a bottle of Barolo. I'm just that way. But I would say that the <clears throat> most exciting wine region in the world right now is the Republic of Georgia which is in the five yeah. Caucasus mountains and is just south of the Soviet Union. Well, there is no Soviet Union of the, no, the Russia, of Russia uh, on the Black Sea uh, and just north of Turkey and Armenia. This is actually the birthplace, if you will, of wine as human beings know it. Uh, the oldest evidence of wine in the world is, uh, is in Georgia, and it dates back to 8,000 years, or 6,000 B.C., and uh, it is a wonderful country, and the people are the finest people you will ever find anywhere. They are just fabulous people. So uh, Georgia is where where it is. it's, uh, It's the only place in the world where they... Uh, lay the claim to 8,000 vintages. Wine history is uninterrupted in Georgia, and uh, they have uh, currently they've lost a lot of them over the last uh, couple hundred years. They were they were uh, taken over by the Soviets and were forced to be a uh, Soviet socialist republic for about 100 and. 70 years or so, and they've broken free of that now. Uh, but they currently have mm, 525 plus uh, indigenous varieties of grape that you've never heard of that are absolutely fantastic. Grapes like uh, Mitzvani and Solacori and Tsitska and saparavi and Castelli and uh, just wonderful stuff, and they make wine the same way that they've been making wine for thousands of years. And they don't make it, in as we make wine in the West, they have big terracotta vessels that they call quivri. And these terracotta vessels may be three or four feet high. They may be six or seven feet high. And they sink them down into the ground where they stay permanently, and at harvest time, they get the grapes, they crush them lightly, they pour the the uh, must into this quivery and they seal it up and they leave it alone. And in some cases, two or three months later, in some cases, two or three years later, they open the quevery and it's done. It's absolutely fantastic. This is where... Uh, This was the genesis of what are now called amber wines or the term that's sometimes used, orange wines. Uh, These are uh, all coming or all came originally from Georgia. So the short answer is the most exciting wine region in the world is the country of Georgia.
1: And I just mentioned a couple of weeks on the show too, that Georgia is starting to do a lot more with the, Native grapes with the original grapes are putting out more and more of the original grapes and replanting yep. more acreage of it and starting to embrace their lineage a lot yep. more. So,
3: Yep. Well, when they were uh, under the thumb of uh, Russia, uh, Georgia was a, the designated wine production region. For the Soviet Union, or a designated wine production region, but uh, the Soviets were into efficiency, and mm-hmm. they didn't like all these what at one time may have been as many as fifteen hundred different grape varieties. Uh, wow. That didn't lead to efficiencies, and so they had huge programs of vine pulling, and uh, mm-hmm. they lost a lot. Uh, they lost a lot of, of grapes forever. Uh, in fact, I was in Georgia about a year ago, and I had an opportunity to uh, taste a pre-domesticated grape wine. So, in other words, we know that the grapes that most wine is made of are Vetus Vinifera Vinifera. Right. Uh, all right, so mm-hmm. that's the genus and, and the species. Well, and that's what we prior all Prior to being, being yeah. right, right, that's what Pinot Noir and Merlot and Chardonnay and Cabernet and Syrah and Sauvignon them. Blanc and everything is Vitis vinifera, uh, and the full name is Vitis vinifera vinifera. Before grapes were domesticated, the wild grape was called Vetus vinifera sylvestri. And sylvestri refers to sylvan. It was of the woods. So these grapes actually grew wild in the woods, and they grew up wrapped around tree trunks and grew up in the trees and so forth. And uh, there is still a population, uh, multiple populations of wild grapes growing in uh, remote areas in Georgia. And uh, I was fortunate enough to taste a wine that was made from those grapes, so that was, for me, that was a pretty spectacular experience. I can imagine Uh, that would be great. Yeah, yeah, it was pretty, uh, pretty incredible. But you know, the amazing thing, again, uh, talking about Georgia and talking about wine in general, is that think about this the the uh evidence that they have found of wine are are big jars and by big I'm talking about you know three feet tall jars mm-hmm. that were filled with wine eight thousand years ago wow. so um, they were wine was a household staple and still is in georgia um, which indicates they they had big jars with grape motifs in them, in the pottery and so forth, 8,000 years ago. Now think about it. Winemaking was a mature endeavor, a mature industry, if I can use that term. Uh, 2,500 years, 2,500 years before the advent of writing. <laughs>
1: I mean that's and that's to add to that it it has not changed that much since then. The basic concept of how wine is made is still pretty much the same as it it was then. You're right. And that's that's fascinating in itself, I think, how how something Mm -hmm. like that can just for for centuries and centuries continue to be basically the same. Mm Mm-hmm. And, yep. Know, so. yeah, I mean I,
3: you know, it's just the details that have changed a bit.
1: That's uh, it, you know, you know, so have gone wild from, yeast, they use domesticated yeast and you know, things like right. that, but the yeast.
3: yeast is on the grape, yeah. I mean the, the beautiful yeah. thing about about wine is that you you need nothing but a grape. And then, that's all you need. You know. Uh, at its yeah. at its most basic level. You, know, you don't have to. You don't have to cook anything. You don't have to stir anything. You don't have to. You just need some grapes, and that's it. And, and, walk and, in and,
1: and they the will drink. make wine by themselves. Yeah, <laughs> they do. They do. I've always said. I think the first wine that was ever made was probably some caveman walked out and saw some grapes and picked them and threw them back in a little indentation in the cave. Went out hunting for, uh, for a bear or something and came back and it had fermented itself. He goes, oh, yep. good, and that's—I I think wine got started.
3: Well, you're probably very close, you know, oh. to to however it did start. That's that's right in line with you know what everyone thinks. You know yeah. that uh, it's- maybe uh, yeah, people were gathering grapes to eat because it was a fruit. It's obviously there uh, through a bunch of grapes in a in a skin bag or something you know and someone came running through and said hey you know there's a there's a woolly mammoth down the road we got to go down and go hunting and they go get it you know through the through the skin of of grapes down in the floor of whatever they were living in the hut or the cave or the lean to or the thatch or whatever it was uh and took off on the hunt and may have been gone for three or four or five days or a week chasing this animal, you know. Uh, when they finally got back, uh, someone sniffed it and was intrigued and tasted it and had this kind of pleasant, warm feeling inside <laughs> after tasting it. And uh, we've never looked back. <laughs> you got to try this. Back.
1: You t- <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Yes. <laughs> you yep. Yeah. Well, I, I and don't so want
3: you know, it, it's been you know a, a key part of our history uh, as human beings. You know, it's it's got uh, tremendous social and religious and artistic and cultural and trade and and medical uh, uses that that have all been key parts of humanity for as long as as we've had wine around, which. Yeah, we know is at least eight thousand years.
1: This is short for eons. It's been, you know, part of part of mankind's life.
2: So mm-hmm. anything else, Mike? Uh, no, that's it. We um, we have about eight, well, about seven and a half minutes left on Blog Talk Radio.
0: Uh, <laughs> I just want
2: to make sure. I know we gave the website out at the beginning of the show, um, but uh, you can find your books on Amazon.com. Are they right. any uh, any place else uh, that you know that uh, people can? Uh, well, find they're them
3: in a, they're actually in a lot of bookstores, so you could okay. check your bookstores. And of course, our local bookstores need all the help they can get these days. And yeah, uh, so, if you go to your local bookstore, call them or send them an email, however you're interfacing with them, uh, and ask them, uh, you can you can get the the name and so forth. Uh, from the website, which again, as you mentioned, is Jim Loughran, Laughren, L-A-U-G-H-R-E-N, Uh And if you go to the website, by the way, uh, and you sign up for a very periodic newsletter, right on the front page, at the bottom of the front page, you can download uh, immediately a free wine aroma wheel, and it's a very cool wine aroma wheel, and it's available in seven different languages. So. Uh for those of your listeners who might be a little more comfortable in Spanish or Italian or Portuguese or Chinese or whatever the case may be, uh there's a wine aroma wheel waiting for them uh that uh, they would probably enjoy and would help them learn a little bit more about wine.
2: Yeah,
1: definitely good. And, I, I just like and a nice nice aroma wheel too. I it's here in all sorts of pretty colors and everything, so you know, do that. Yeah. do that now we'll wait go we'll yeah. do it now right we'll wait here we'll just wait for you. <laughs> uh, anything else jim before we say good night uh no i would just
3: say thank you very much uh thanks for uh, sharing your knowledge and the knowledge of other people with with those folks uh in your audience and uh I would say to the audience members or the Facebook people who are who are tuned in or are paying attention to this that uh, uh, this this show this blog is a great resource, uh, and they should always feel free to shoot you questions or shoot me questions through you, whatever the case may be, or send me questions directly uh, through my website if they uh, would like to know more and uh, you know figure out uh, how to make your make make it through these next uh, weeks or months or whatever we're going to be uh, doing here with our uh, social distancing and uh, self-quarantining, uh, this too will pass. Uh, wine has been around a lot longer than, than any of these uh, temporary introductions, thank goodness, and, and hopefully everyone is healthy and safe and stay that way. Thank
1: you. And, uh, thank you for being on the show. We do appreciate it. And I'd like to reserve the opportunity to get in touch with you uh, at a later date, bring you back on the show because it was so interesting and, and so uh, educational listening to you. I enjoyed it tremendously. So if well, you I'd be, my... I'd be tickled anytime, I'd be tickled. Yeah. Oh, well, we'll keep that in mind. And one last time before you go, everyone. Check out his books. They are simply written, easy to read, and you're not going to be overwhelmed with technical data and stuff like that. It's something that you would enjoy putting in front of you while you're sequestered during the times now. It's a great way to pass some time. So, mm-hmm. yep. Again, Jim, thank you very much. We'll look forward to talking to you at a future date.
3: Gentlemen, yeah. thank you. And uh, stay happy and stay healthy.
1: You also thank,
2: thank you very much. Now. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. Bye. Bye.
1: bye All
2: right. Uh, yep. Yeah, disconnected. Yeah, okay.
1: Just
2: <clears throat> all right. Um,
1: well, I was pronouncing his name wrong all the time. <laughs> you
0: know.
2: <laughs> well, I, didn't, yeah. I, didn't, I didn't hear you. La- I didn't hear you pronoun- mispronounce it, but. Last time, but uh, yeah, it's, I always it's, thought it was uh, Laffren,
1: Laffren or Laffren. I mean,
2: uh, normally, when I have the green room, I ask ahead of time and I put it in the notes, you know, on the on the on the show page, so you know. And yeah. I we couldn't do that. I don't know. And do then that. now I'm thinking that six four six number, I believe that was on before, called using the call in button from the show page instead of an actual oh. phone number because that's the. Thing. Yeah, it was the same number. Well not it was off a little bit from what we have here on the guest call in line. But um yeah, that that's uh that's what I'm that's thinking. Strange. It came from there. So yeah. I don't know. I was like, oh six four six, that must be him. No. <laughs>
1: no. Six <laughs> four six in he New York, like you said. No that
2: was strange that, though. I'm, you know. Yeah. That was, it was strange regular right showtime. Time. You know. Yeah. Um, oh well. Uh <laughs> they they see uh we have a guest coming up on the show and they think they're the guest so there you go yes that's, like, it. that's it oh this was not your thing <laughs> uh, well, very enjoyable uh, uh he's he really has you know i didn't even get into the certification and you know all that uh, he's a certified uh, wine educator and you know that that um it, 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 what you go through to be a certified uh, a CWE, I didn't even, didn't even get it, get into that, and uh, it was just everything he was talking about was so interesting. I was like, wow, you know, it's just, this is fantastic. Yeah. And uh, then a series, the series he has, uh, you know, I want to check. He says it's an cu- upcoming series of uh, everything you need to know about wine in 15 minutes, and uh, uh-huh. what? We'll, not able to catch up with that but uh we had a you know 90 minutes on blog talk radio we have about 6 hours we can go on facebook so <laughs> i mean oh no, so, yeah you know, so we'll bring him back we, we will
1: yeah we'll bring
2: definitely
1: back, bring
2: him but, back on the show and yeah. everything. it was it was enjoyable so yeah it Thank was you, enjoyable though. um very very cool so yeah look forward to that um other than that so i don't be know safe if you have yeah.
1: No, I don't have anything. Little... Everyone, be okay. we got sixty seconds before we get cut off. Oh. We'll be
2: back so, in April the second, April the second, seven p.m. Eastern time on Blog Talk Radio and Facebook. And thank you to everybody, uh, Gina. Thank you for your question and for everybody listening to us on Facebook and um,
1: and, and, and again, check out Jim's books. Yeah, yeah.
2: We'll see you all. See y'all next week. Let me, I don't think I can get this in, but we'll try It's not going <laughs> to get in.
0: This concludes tonight's broadcast of All About Wine with your host, Ron. For show information, links to All About Wine on Twitter and Facebook, or to be a guest on this show, visit the show website at www.allaboutwinebtr.com. Archived shows are available for download on iTunes or on our show page at blogtalkradio.com forward slash all about wine. Thank you for listening. Drink responsibly, and we'll see you next time on All About Wine. I think
1: we got it in.
2: I think so.